Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Thank you, Jeff and worship team. Good to sing with you all this morning. Good to be with you all. And I want to say happy Father's Day as well. I've got my best dad ever mug sitting up here reminding me of uh, really not that I'm the best dad ever, but that we have a God who is the best dad ever. Uh, Pastor jokes, right? Uh, Let's dive in this morning. As for man, his days are like the grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field and the wind passes over them and they are gone. Psalm 103. In a 2006 film titled Stranger Than Fiction, director Mark Forster beautifully depicts a story of life and death in the mundane everyday things of life. Harold Crick, played by Will Ferrell, is the main character. He's a type A senior agent for the IRS who daily pours over tax audits and has everything synchronized to a wristwatch. In a sort of bizarre depiction, a parallel universe, Harold wakes up one morning to discover that his life is being narrated by a British author named Karen Eiffel. He begins to hear her voice in his head describing his every moment in detail. The brush strokes while he's brushing his teeth, the way he ties his neckties in a single Windsor knot, his walk to the bus stop. And on a Wednesday, Harold's wristwatch goes on the fritz and the narrator makes this statement. Little did he know that this seemingly innocuous event would lead him to his impending death. Now, obviously, Harold is shaken by this and must do everything he can do to find out what's going on. His life depends on it. He goes to a therapist who tells him he's suffering from schizophrenia. He visits a professor of English literature who becomes his closest ally to find out what's happening. And together, they try to understand just what kind of story Harold might be a part of and how the knowledge of how and when a person might die just might be a gift. Harold hunts down the author face to face to see if there's anything he can do to change the way the story ends. His professor friend tells him he should just live his life well and do all the things that matter most to him while he awaits the narrator to bring about his impending death. So he falls in love. He learns to play the guitar. He stops counting his brushstrokes. He begins to see with new eyes. He eats a chocolate chip cookie and enjoys it for the first time. And he realizes that the life he's been given is beautiful. Now, while this film does not point to the truth that life surrendered to God is what really matters, it came awfully close. In the closing scene, Harold Crick is hit by the very bus that he catches every morning after stepping out in front of it to rescue a boy who had fallen off his bike. 
The scene is tragic and beautiful all at the same time. You see, Harold knew what was going to happen to him. He knew he was going to die, and he even discovers how he's going to die and decides it would be more meaningful for his life to lay it down than to try to change it. This story is a beautiful echo of God's story. So you might be asking, what does this have to do with Acts today? Well, I think it has a whole lot to do with it. And so we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 20, and we're going to see Paul in a bit of a similar boat as our IRS agent, Harold Crick. There are definitely differences. Unlike Harold Crick, Paul has been transformed by the gospel. His mission is to follow Christ, and that's what's motivating him, whereas Harold is simply transformed by the fact that he understands he's about to die and that there's much to live for. But what is the same is that like Harold, Paul is aware that his life will come to a close soon. And it will likely be tragic, suffering for the sake of the gospel. And, he, and we'll see what Paul has to say specifically to a group of elders at the church in Ephesus as he understands that his time on earth is short. And so my hope for you this morning is that you too will come to grips with the fact that our time here on earth is short. As the psalmist says, our days are like the flowers of the field. My prayer is that in light of this reality, you might be encouraged to consider afresh what really matters most. And I hope to make the case through this part of Paul's story that God's kingdom is what matters most. And so to borrow a sports analogy, let me ask it this way. What would it look like for you to leave it all on the field for God's kingdom? If you knew today how many days you had left on earth, how would you respond? I think if we're honest, we're all a lot like Harold Crick, just going through the motions of life, working, trying to be a good friend, a good son or daughter, a good dad, a good mother, a good student, maybe even trying to be a faithful churchgoer. But I also think if we're really honest, when we lie down at night and all is quiet, we're haunted by the deeper questions of life and faith. What is all this for? Where does all this lead? Is there a greater purpose? Does God really love me? Do I really love God? If so, what am I supposed to be doing in my life to make a difference? Let me pray as we open up Acts chapter 20 this morning. Father, we recognize you as author and perfecter of our lives. And we submit our hearts to your word this morning. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see treasure in your words, treasure in your truth. We love you. We thank you for the father that you are to us. In Christ's name, amen. So Acts chapter 20 we're going to pick up the story of Paul in the early church in the middle of a lot happening, busy travel, lots of meetings, conversations with people in various towns and churches. And if you could see all the meetings and names on iCal, it might be overwhelming. None of you can relate to that, right? Lots of meetings, names, places to be. And for the sake of time this morning, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I greatly encourage you to do so this week as you reflect. In the opening verses of chapter 20, we see lots of places and names mentioned. There's a schedule that Paul is keeping. 
and specific places he needs to get to and people he needs to connect with. And through the first six verses, we see this specific theme of encouragement. You see, Paul was spending time with people that mattered to him most, and his aim was to encourage them. Verse two says that when he had gone throughout those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. I wanna ask you, what is your posture like in the busyness of life? How about when you're traveling? Or when things don't seem to go up and to the right? Are you seeking to be an encourager? Life goals, right? Right? I think this list of places and people is here to help us see what really matters. People matter. Places matter. Time matters. And I want to say, don't rush over sections like this in the Bible. They tell us something of the heart of God, as does every word of Scripture. Well, next in the chapter, we come to this pretty dramatic moment for Paul and the disciples whom he was with. I'm going to read starting in verse 7. You can follow along. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up, dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. Wow, it's pretty intense, right? Paul is gathering with a f- uh, fellow followers of Jesus. They're breaking bread together. They're sharing a meal. And Paul was teaching them late into the night. It sounds a whole lot like the book of Acts began, doesn't it? The believers meeting often for prayer, for encouragement, for sharing all things together as they sought the Lord. This was a three-story building. It might have been a wealthy person's home, or it could have been more like a low-income apartment building. We're not quite sure, but either way, we know this was a home, and it was three stories tall. And we see that there were several lamps burning in this room. I have to remind you, they didn't have electricity. So in order to teach and encourage one another into the late hours of the night, they needed light. So many lamps burning, likely. Eutychus is a young boy who is sitting by a window. And the word closest to the Greek here would be lad, a young lad. He was likely between the ages of eight and 14. And we know he fell asleep. This could have been just because of the time of day, late into the evening. It could have been that he passed out because the lamps that were burning, giving off fumes or sucking up oxygen where he was sitting. We're not quite sure. But nonetheless, his falling asleep causes him to plummet out the window. The text just kind of moves along. But can you imagine what this must have been like? Everyone would have run down to try to help this boy. It was tragic, and it would have been very chaotic and intense. And then we see Paul bending over this lad and taking him up in his arms. The scripture says life had left his body. I can't imagine. 
And then Paul says to the crowd, do not be alarmed for his life is still in him. Make no mistake, this was a miracle. God raises Eutychus from the dead through the arms, hands, words, and faith of Paul. And what happens next? They go back upstairs and they continue to break bread and Paul continues to teach well into the morning. And the scripture says they were not a little comforted. In other words, they were greatly comforted by God and by Paul and what they had just witnessed in their time together. Why is this story here? Why does this have to happen? These are questions we ought to be asking when we read scripture. I've wrestled with why this story is here. What are we to glean from it? And what comes to mind is that God wants us to see that even in the middle of doing good, serving him, pressing on in our work, we may face tragedy and death. This should be no surprise to us. Jesus spoke of this to his followers as well. He said, you will have trouble in this world. You will suffer as I have suffered. You will see death. But friends, there's also incredible hope captured in this story. Resurrection, life. Death does not get the final blow. And the incredible silver lining is that all those who place their hope and trust in Jesus Christ will too experience resurrection from the dead. Is that good news? Let's close up shop, right? Man, we've got more ground to cover, so let's press on. In the next few verses, we see Paul's travel plans continue. The places and times mentioned are also very significant and intentional. And we should see here again that places and time matter to God. They are what make up our journey in life, and we must be intentional about where we go, when we go, and what we do with our time here on earth. It's likely that these travel plans were mentioned here to highlight Paul adjusting his plans in order to stay a bit longer with Eutychus and those who just experienced the tragic window event. Are you flexible with your plans? Do people matter more than keeping your tight schedule? I love verse 16 says, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. I love this because Paul was both intentional here. He was hastening to be at Jerusalem so he could make Pentecost, but there are also two words that show his flexibility, if possible. Can I confess to you this morning that this is a great challenge for me. I am one who loves to keep the plan. I like to show up early. I like to be a, you know, we're gonna keep the schedule, we're gonna keep the plan. It really throws me for a loop. Anybody relate? Verse 17, the story picks up. So from Miletus, Paul sends word to a group of elders in Ephesus to come to him. He was setting up a meeting with those who were placed in positions of leadership over the church in Ephesus. And he had some very important words and things he wanted to say to them. Before we dive in here, I wanna speak to you for just a moment as one of the elders here at Redemption Church. And I wanna say to you that Paul's words here in these next verses are extremely important to me. 
And I can speak on behalf of our elders that we're listening to what Paul has to say. And we're framing how we lead the church through Paul's encouragement and through God's word. And so together, let's see what Paul has to say to these elders. I'll pick it up in verse 19. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pause here for just a moment and make a couple observations. Paul is reminding them that he lived among them. He's not a stranger to their lives, to their ways. He wept with them in hardship. He did not shrink from sharing the truth with both those who believed and those who did not. He reminded them of the message of repentance and faith in Jesus. Now, Paul was keenly aware of what repentance looks like. Remember when he was called Saul, the man who drug Christians out of their home to stone them? Paul is practicing humility and boldness as he speaks to these elders of Ephesus. Let's continue in verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. It's intense. It sounds a little bit like Paul has someone narrating his life. Paul is intimately connected to God through the person of the Holy Spirit. Paul describes himself as being constrained by the Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is testifying to him about what's gonna happen to his life. This totally reminded me of the film that I opened with. Paul is aware of what's going to happen to him because he has put his faith and his trust in God and has submitted to his full counsel and purpose for his life. He is in tune with God's voice. You know, last week, Chase closed his message with the question, have you given God the last 10% of your life? Are you wholly devoted? Are you so in tune with scripture and prayer that you are being guided by God in your day to day? That's what we ought to glean here. Paul was. And don't get me wrong, Paul was a sinner just like you and me, but Paul understood with clarity his purpose in God's story. And the text here says it's because Paul is constrained by the Holy Spirit. Friends, are you captured? Are you constrained? Are you connected to the Holy Spirit? Let's move on. Verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day 
that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is better, it is blessed to give than to receive. I wanna spend the rest of our time drawing out seven things that matter to Paul and should matter to the elders of our church and in turn should matter greatly to you who are a part of this church. So for you note takers, get ready. I'll move through these pretty quickly. Number one, embodied presence matters. Paul reminds them that he was with them, serving humbly, working hard, sharing in their hardships, praying and crying with them as he taught them, you guys, this is the kind of elder that I aspire to be. This is the kind of elders that your church aspires to be, present with you. Embodied presence matters. Number two, Teaching truth matters. We see Paul taking every opportunity available to him to teach others about Christ. He was eager to teach, even in the face of persecution. He taught in public and he taught in homes. He taught those who believed and those who did not. Church, I feel this. It's real to me. I'm eager to teach, just like Paul was. And yes, even in the face of pushback. We follow Paul's examples as elders in this church. This is why we teach the Bible every Sunday. This is why we gather in homes throughout the week. Teaching matters. Number three, suffering and death matters. We know this because of the story of Eutychus. Death is a reality that we will all face. Suffering is a reality that we will all face. And Paul is aware of this. Both by the knowledge of what Jesus says about those who follow him and by the witness of the Holy Spirit in his life. Our purpose in life is not to avoid it, but to embrace it in faith. For those in Christ Jesus, those who will suffer will never suffer in vain. But rather, through our suffering and death, God is sure to bring about something more beautiful than we could ever imagine. 
suffering and death matters. Number four, caution matters. Paul reminds these elders to regularly keep watch over their own hearts and over the hearts of those they are leading. Why? Because there are wolves who do Satan's bidding and want to destroy every good work of God. Friends, make no mistake, we are in a spiritual battle. Paul says there will be wolves who rise up among you. In 1 Peter 5, another passage written to the elders of the church, it says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. So we must resist him, firm in our faith, knowing that the same kinds of struggles and suffering are being experienced by our brothers and sisters all over the world. You guys, this is not fear-based. This is wisdom-based. We are to be careful and watchful over our souls. That is our calling as elders, and it is our calling as Christians. Number five, God's grace matters. God's grace matters. Paul commends them to God and specifically to God's word of grace to bring about their inheritance in Christ. That is their eternal life. Paul does not have the ability to save them, nor does he have the ability to bring about their spiritual maturity as they grow. Only God can do that, so he commends them to God. And he says that by grace, through faith, and not by works, so that no man should boast. He celebrates the grace of God. Grace matters. Number six, hard work matters. Paul reminds them that he worked hard with his hands, with his heart, with his mind, to love and to share with them the truth and life found only in Christ. And this is how we help the weak. We give ourselves away. We pour out every ounce of effort in order to help others who are in need. Why? Because Jesus said, it's better to give than to receive. Do you believe that? Have you experienced what that's like to pour yourself out for the sake of others? I've been on both the receiving end of that and the giving end of it, and it is truly the best thing in life to see those in need wake up to life in Christ and to put their trust in him for every need of theirs. Paul also mentions money and possessions. Now, that's a biggie, especially for us in America. Paul wants them to live by his example in placing little worth on money and possessions. Seeking them will only bring temporal happiness. Instead, scripture tells us to store up treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth destroys. And the only way to do that is to invest in kingdom work. Are you ready to get your hands dirty? To work hard? This church does not flourish without the hard work of its elders. And equally as important, the hard work of you all. Hard work matters. 
So I say this, lay it all on the field. Work hard for God and for the people that he has divinely placed you with. And number seven, God's love matters most. We know this because of what Christ did for us. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we got all our stuff together, not when we optimized our spiritual practices, but smack dab in the middle of our darkness. He died for us. And this is how we know the love of God. Friends, do you know the love of God? It's what matters most in this life. Verse 36. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied accompanied him to the ship. Friends, what are you living for? Are you aware that your days are short? Do Paul's words stir your heart to realize what matters most in this life? Do you realize, like Harold Crick, we too have an author of our lives? The difference is that the author of our lives is more loving and compassionate than we could ever imagine, and that what he wants more than anything is for us to know his love for us, that we might dwell secure in him. And he wants us to give that love away. In the closing of the film, Karen Eiffel, the author narrating Harold Crick's life, she's only written books that end in the hero's death. But in this story, she is radically captured by Harold's willingness to die, and she decides to change the ending of her book. In the final scene, she's talking with Professor Jules about the changes she made to her book. And Professor Jules asks, why did you change the book? Karen says, lots of reasons. I just realized I couldn't do it. Professor Jules says, because he's real? Karen says, because it's a book about a man who doesn't know he's about to die and then dies. But if the man does know he's going to die and dies anyway, dies willingly, knowing he could stop it, then, I mean, isn't that the type of man you want to keep alive? So Harold survives being hit by this bus. In a sense, Karen Eiffel decides to resurrect Harold Crick from the dead. Why? Because he was willing to lay it all on the field. Harold saw others' lives more important than his very own. Paul, too, saw others, you and me, more important than his own life. And Jesus Christ saw us as more important than his own life, laying it down for us that we might have life that goes beyond this world. I'm spending a lot of time thinking about these things these days as a father and as a husband, as a friend, as an elder here at Redemption. And the more time I reflect on God's love for me, 
the more I just want to give it all away. As for man, his days are like the grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Friends, let's live for God's kingdom. It's the only kingdom that matters. It's the only kingdom that is everlasting to everlasting. And I want to ask you this morning, do you know the great narrator's voice? Is he calling you? Maybe he is right now. Maybe as we've worshiped this morning, you're hearing him speak to your heart, the innermost place of your soul, saying, come to me, receive my life. Maybe he's saying it again to you for the hundredth or thousandth or millionth time. And I want to say to you, lift your gaze to him. You will never regret it. You will find life worth living. And you will find a desire to leave it all on the field for the sake of others because that's what Christ did for you. That's what Paul did for you. Who will you lay your life down for? This is discipleship. Paul's words echo in my head as we close. He says, and you guys probably know this verse if you've been in church. Paul says these words, To live is Christ and to die is gain. Wow. I want to offer you maybe a practical way to start this morning. Maybe this is all a little intense. Uh, Maybe you're new to the faith or new to what following Christ looks like. Or maybe you've been doing it a long time and you're just stuck. So can I give you a practical place to start? This is something I'm actually doing right now to keep watch over my soul. For the next 40 days, commit to reading God's word, just one chapter a day. You could start in Genesis or Matthew, maybe John, but just pick a place to start today and one chapter a day for 40 days. And after you read, Write down a prayer or two. Pick up a journal if you don't have one. Don't worry about your language or having polished prayers, but just write some honest thoughts to God. He is the great author and narrator of our lives. He is the only one worthy of following, and he is the only one who can bring life I want to close this morning. Uh, might be a little bit awkward for you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, Paul knelt before these elders as he was getting ready to leave, and he prayed over them. And so I'm going to kneel before you guys this morning. I'm just going to invite you to pray with me. And as one of the elders of your church, I just uh, felt led to do this. And so uh, in closing, let me pray over us.
Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for these words of Paul that bring encouragement and light to us weary travelers. God, I pray as an elder of this church and for the, on behalf of the elders of this church that we would cling to you in the ways that Paul describes here, that we would understand our calling and our duty to fulfill. And God, I pray over each person here as they commend themselves to you, as they commend themselves to this church, that you would fill their hearts with your love. The height, the breadth, the depth, the width, that they might understand you fully, that they might wake up to deep, meaningful life only found in Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.